Chapter 14 of Regiment of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Regiment of Women by Clement Dane. Chapter 14. Miss Marsham was accustomed to recognize that it was the brief career of Cynthia Griffiths that first induced her to consider the question of her own retirement. It is certain that the school was never again quite as it had been before her advent. The Cynthia Griffiths term remained a school date from which to reckon as the nation reckons from the Jubilee. In an American school, Cynthia Griffiths must have been at least a disturbing element. In the state English establishment, with its curious mixture of modern pedagogy and early Victorian training, she was seismic. With their usual adaptability, the new girls, as they accustomed themselves subduedly to the strange atmosphere, had found nothing to cavil at in the school arrangements. They had not thought it incongruous to come from Swedish exercises to prolonged and personal daily prayers, kneeling for ten minutes at a time while their headmistress wrestled with deity. It might have bored girls of sixteen and eighteen to learn their daily Bible verse and recite it alternately with the kindergarten and lower school, but it never occurred to them to protest any more than they were likely to object to the little notebook which each girl carried with its printed list of twenty-five possible crimes and the dangling pencil wherewith, at tea-time, to mark herself innocent or guilty. The hundred and one rules that Edith Marsham had found useful in the youth of her seminary forty years before, and that time had rendered obsolete, irritating, or merely unintelligible, were nevertheless endured with entire good nature by her successions of pupils. Alwyn and her contemporaries might fume in private, and Claire shrug her shoulders in languid tolerance, but nobody thought it worth while to question directly the entire sufficiency of a bygone system to the needs of the new century's hockey-playing generations. But a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. What, if you please, is an old lady to do? An old lady, declining on her pleasant seventies, owning sixty, not a day more, traditionally awe-inspiring and unapproachable, whose security lies in the legends that have grown up of the terrors of her eye and tongue, when young America clamors at her intimidating door? Young America, calm-eyed, courteous, coaxing, squatting confidentially at the feet of authority, demanding counsel and comfort, useless for harried authority to suggest consultation with equally harried assistance. Young America, with a charming smile and the prettiest of gestures, would rather talk it over quietly with authority's self. Authority, who is the very twin of her dear old granny at home, will be sure to understand. Such fuss is about nothing all day and every day. Can it be that authority expects her to keep her old bureau tidy when she's had a maid all her life? Young America will be married as soon as she quits Europe, follows a confidential sketch of the more promising of young America's best boys, and have her own maid right on. Can authority, as a matter of cold common sense, see any use in bothering over cupboards for just three months or so? If so, right. Young America will worry along somehow, but it seemed kind of foolish, didn't it? Or could young America hire a girl, like she did in Paris? Anyway, it was rough luck on the lady in the glasses to get an apoplexy every day, as authority might take it was the case at present. 
Another point. Could authority, surveying matters impartially, see any harm in running downtown when she was out of candy? It only meant missing ten minutes French, and if there was one thing young America, lapsing suddenly, with bedazing fluency, into that language, was sure of, it was French. These English-French classes meant well, but, her God, how they were slow! There had been, young America confessed it with candid regret, some difficulties with acute little mark books. Young America had mislaid three in a fortnight. She just put them down, and they lay around a while, and then they weren't there. Some of the ladies had been real annoyed. And once on the subject of mark books, did authority really mean that she was to chalk it up each time she was late for breakfast, or say darn it, or talked in class? Would, in her place, authority be able to keep tally? Couldn't young America just mark off the whole concern and be done with it? Young America apologized for worrying authority with these quaint matters, but, on her honor, every lady in the school seemed to have gone plumb crazy about them. They just sat around and yapped at her. Young America was genuinely scared. She had thought a heart-to-heart -heart chat with authority ought to put things right. She would be real grateful to authority for fixing things. And so, with the odd curtsy she had learned among the duchies, as she called a German pensionnat, and a hearty kiss on either cheek, young America, affable as ever, beamed upon authority and withdrew. Authority felt as if it had been out in a high wind. Instinctively it clutched at its imposing headdress. All was in place. Authority lay back in its chair and gasped fishily. But Miss Vigors frenzied into confession of inability to deal with the situation, got scant sympathy. "'What am I to do? I hate troubling you, I am sure, though it's a relief to us all to have you back. Of course, if you had been at home, she would never have been admitted. You would have realized the unsuitability, but it was not my decision. Miss Hartle, but what am I to do? I flatter myself I can control our English girls.' But these Americans! Open defiance, Miss Marsham! Her room! She refuses to attend to it. She comes and goes when she chooses. She treats me, positively, as an equal. Her influence is unspeakable. It must be stopped. Ten minutes late for breakfast. Oh, every day! Once, I could excuse. And on the top of it all, to offer me chocolates. I must ask you to punish her severely. Keep her in? Miss Marsham, I did. I sent her to a room. Miss Marsham, will you believe me? When I went up to her later, she was fast asleep. On the bed. In the daytime. Without taking off the counterpane. Miss Marsham, I leave the matter to you. She paused for the comments her tale deserved. But to outraged authority, it had called up a picture. An impudent picture of young America curled kitten fashion on its austere white palate, pink cheek on rounded arm, guileless eyes opening sleepily under a sour and scandalized gaze. Henrietta started. She could not believe her ears. Benevolently, unmistakably, authority had chuckled. But the scandal was short-lived. Before the term was over, before Henrietta had braced herself to her usual resource, a threat of resignation, or Miss Marsham, hesitating between the devil of her protesting subordinates and the deep sea of young America's unshakable conviction 
that in her directness she had an enthusiastic partisan, could allow her maid to suggest to her that she needed a change, the end had arrived. Cynthia, as Alwyn had surmised, found ten weeks of an English private school more than enough for her, and an imperious telegram had summoned her docile parents. She departed as she had come, in a joyous flurry. The school mourned, and the common room, in its relief, sped the parting guest with a cordiality that was almost effusive. A remark of Henrietta's, as the mistress sat over their coffee on the afternoon of Cynthia's departure, voiced the attitude of the majority to its late pupil. "'I'm thankful,' Miss Vigors was unusually talkative. "'Deeply thankful that she's gone. An impossible young woman. Oh, no, you couldn't call her a girl. Would any girl, any English girl, conceivably behave as she has? They have begun to imitate her, of course. That was to be expected. She demoralized the school. It will take me a month to get things straight. I have three children in bed today. Headaches? Fiddlesticks. Overeating. I suppose you heard that there was a midnight feast last night? The common room opened its eyes. I'm not astonished. A farewell gathering, I suppose. I'm sure it's not the first, said Claire, her eyes alight with amusement. But go on. How did you find it out? Miss Marshall informed me of it, said Henrietta, with desperate calmness. It appears that Cynthia asked her permission. Miss Marsham, er, contributed a cake. Seed! Claire gurgled. This is priceless. Did she tell you? I wonder she had the face. Henrietta grew pink. No, Cynthia herself. She, er, offered me a slice. She had the impertinence, the entirely American impertinence, to come to my room after midnight to borrow a tooth-glass, to eat ices in. It appeared that they were short of receptacles. Ices, came the chorus. Her mother provided them, I believe. In a pail, said Henrietta stiffly. Did you lend the tooth-glass? asked Claire. Henrietta coughed. It was difficult to refuse. She had bare feet. I did not wish her to catch cold. Claire turned away abruptly. Her shoulders shook. I do not wish to be unjust. I do not think she was intentionally insubordinate. Henrietta fingered one of the tall pink roses that had appeared on her desk that morning. I believe she meant well. She was a dear, said the little gym mistress. She was an impossible young woman, retorted Henrietta with spirit. At the same time... At the same time, Claire spoke with unusual friendliness. She certainly had a way with her, said Henrietta. End of chapter 14, recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.